Part of my routine every morning, actually the first thing I do, I get out of bed, because of my age, I visit the little boys' room. Some of you will understand that. Um, and then I begin to make my way downstairs to get coffee for my wife, but there's a routine I have to go through before I leave the bedroom. I have to open some doors, close some other doors, put a door stop in another door, turn on the house fan, shut off another fan, so that there would be a nice, fresh, cool breeze coming through our room as Becky is laying there on the bed just enjoying that moment. Why do I do that? I do that because I I love her, and it's just a simple expression of my love. And as we're singing that song, and I'm watching these flags move around in the breeze, it's just a simple expression of God's love for this ragtag group of people that don't mean anything on the big world stage of events, and yet God shows up and says, let me just give a little expression of my love. Because they've been trying to figure out what it looks like to worship me and be my church in a, in a crazy time and with all these different voices. And look at them. Look at those ugly pop-up things they put up. That was a joke. Yeah. We're thankful for them, right? Look at, look at, their, look at all the work that's in and all the stuff that's happening. Let me just remind them that I'm there with them. Yeah, amen. So a lot of volunteers. Let me just send them a nice breeze that says, I'm pleased that you've gathered in my name. And some of you are new this morning. Some of you, I don't know you. But there's that's an expression of who we believe God to be. A great God that we just sang of, of grace and mercy. And he loves to give us little reminders that he's present and that he loves us. So be thankful for this breeze. And... Um, Pray for me as I go through my routine every morning. Because I love, I love my wife. I want to direct your attention to Luke chapter 16. We finished up chapter 15 last week. Pastor Matt took us through an, an incredible section of scripture. And I hope that you're still um, reeling from that in a good way. The heart of the Father, the heart of God. I also hope that you took away from that, that what he was teaching, what he what is described here in this parable that Jesus um, teaches is, is really a crisis. It's really about a crisis in that family. It's a crisis in the relationship between the father and his, his two sons. But it's bigger than that, isn't it? It really was a crisis moment in that community, in that culture. And he talked about shame and honor and how that affected what was, was playing out there. And and there were parts of it that, as we learned last week, that were shocking to the people. They were shocking because it was it, it, this, this crisis that Jesus is describing in this parable was, was hard to process. Well, we don't know if chapter 15 and 16 are connected time-wise, chronologically. There might be a space in between. But what Jesus does, he's going to give us two more parables here in, in 16. One that we're very familiar with, the second one that we're going to look at in you just don't know what it's going to look like. It won't be here. There'll be a stream next week, a live stream or a stream um, for those at home. But we'll have something from family camp. From the parable of the, the rich guy that goes to hell. He goes to Sheol, right? He goes to the next life and Lazarus the beggar. And again, that would, that would be a, that's a crisis. If you remember, he says, hey, send somebody back because I got brothers and they need to know about this place. And he's having a crisis. And he can see the other side. And so Jesus tells this shocking parable. And he loves to do that, right? He loves to tell parables. And they're either shocking or they have a twist in them that throw us off, or they might have both. And the one that we have at the beginning of chapter 16 is, is of that nature. It's shocking. It's a crisis that, that would touch on so many aspects of their, of their society, of their culture. And it's got a twist in it that even for us today, and I'll just admit personally, as I'm preparing and studying through this, like, God... What in the world? Jesus, what was your intent? And, and why are you making these claims? And, and there's a lot here. And so we're going to be here for a while today. So I hope the chairs are comfortable. But these three parables have this in, in, in common. There's a crisis. I looked up the word crisis because it just seemed natural to do when I reflect on my own life right now. And here's what I found. A crisis is defined as a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. Real or perceived. I'll just add that on there. It's a time when difficult or important decisions need to be made. 
Now we know Jesus wasn't telling parables. He wasn't painting these crisis moments that was shot, that were shocking people and upsetting. What do we do with this? Just so that he could kind of stand there and watch and see how they all ran around like an like an anthill that you disturbed. He had a purpose, didn't he? He always had an intent. And I hope that you will take what we learned last week, the heart of the Father, and you will superimpose that on every parable that you hear Jesus teach. Every time you study it, every time you hear someone else teach on a parable, as you walk through the Word of God, the Gospels, in your own reading, superimpose over, put on these glasses, this filter, the heart of God that we saw last week. Does that make sense? I believe that's the intent, the purpose of that, that those three parables last week is the heart of God towards sinners. And I won't call you out, but I will call myself out. I'm in that category. You do? I'm in that category of sinner. And we need to impose, superimpose the heart of God. So as we're reading this morning and we study this parable, there's going to be moments where we're like, what? And there's going to be moments too where we're shocked or maybe we disagree or we're like, what? I, you know, or just superimpose the heart of God because Jesus always tells a parable for our benefit, to help us grow. In fact, if you want a title for this morning, here's where my heart is. How do we grow in a crisis? How do we grow in a crisis? If we're honest with each other and we took some time to do this, we'd, we'd hear a lot of responses. Well, you know what? I'm just trying to survive in a crisis. I'm just trying to live a day at a time. I'm just trying to figure out what... Look at Jack. How long it takes her to turn it off is directly related to age. Oh, there we go. Okay. So if you're counting seconds, it's like thunder. You know how far away? How many seconds? He has a better voice than I do. Can we just let him read it? I totally lost my where I was at. Oh, the crisis. Thank you. Yeah. yeah give her, give her a paper copy. That'll, that'll, that'll throw the problem. We just, we're just trying to survive. We're just trying to figure out what it means financially. What it means. You know, what, what we hear in the media or what the government's doing or what our governor's doing or what, you know, our, our boss is doing and what's happening at work and what's happening in restaurants and what's happening in the places that we go. And in, in we, get, we get into crisis mode. We do. We get into crisis mode. And we just, okay, I'm just going to try to survive. I'm just going to try to figure it out. Other in crisis mode means I'm going to help everybody else figure out what's going on. We could go on for some time and we could have all these different responses, but here's the common denominator that happens way too often in times of crisis, is we forget our identity, we forget our mission. We lose sight of why we're here. And that's where we're gonna end up this morning. That's our will be my final thought as we prepare to move to the Lord's table, is coming back to remember our identity and why we're here. Why is it that we're setting, going through all this work to set all this stuff up and to be able to do this? So that we can show the governor, no, so that we can, no, we can fill that blank in. But here, here's how we need to fill it in. Because we have an identity of Christ. And we have a mission as his people. None of this is, all this is temporal. But the mission, the identity that we've been given in Jesus Christ is eternal. And it's constant, should be constant through every crisis, through every moment, through every situation, through every season that we, we experience. So a crisis is defined as a time of intense, difficult trouble or danger, a time when difficult or important decisions need to be made. We're in a time of crisis. We can label it different things, but we're in a time where our world has been rattled, has been shaken up, and so much of what we thought we knew is no longer the way it is. And there's all these new words, but I hate most of them. So I'm not going to go down that road, but there's all these new words in our vocabulary, right? The new normal is the one that, you know, is this the new normal? If we're not careful, we're going to get caught up in that, and that type of crisis mode, and we're not going to be focused on our identity in Jesus Christ and our mission that he's given to us. One of my favorite things of gathering together, whatever the setting, is looking at your faces and realizing that we really are an eclectic, and I'll, with grace, I'll say strange, diverse. We are. There's no, there's no other moment, there's no other setting that I can think of on this planet that this would happen except in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Now you love me, right? Please say you do. But we may not have anything to do with each other outside of the setting. We may not bowl together. We may not work together. We may not live in the same neighborhood. We may not shop at the same stores. We may not be in the same political party. We may not be in the same social economic, right? We may not be friends. We may not get along with each other. Just throwing it out there. But coming here, we bring all that with us. And we find unity in our identity in Jesus Christ and the mission that he's given us to fulfill. Until he says, come home. Whenever that takes place. So we come to chapter 16. He's talking to his disciples and he's telling a parable. We've established that. He's telling his disciples. It's interesting that Luke will sometimes give us the audience, right? Last week we saw that in the middle of those, we were given a clue as to who was here, right? The scribes and the Pharisees were joining. So the crowd could actually change, right? It can, you know how a mob is, right? When people, you know, or a crowd, it can just start growing. He says he's talking to his disciples. So it's important because if you're a disciple of Jesus, you need to open up your ears and say, okay, he's talking to me. This is for me. There was a rich man. He received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. Squandering being the same word Jesus used of the prodigal brother last week when he went off and squandered his father's wealth or his inheritance on riotous living. It literally means to scatter. I think that's what you said. It just, you, just, you use it not for its purpose. You use it unwisely. You use it foolishly. In fact, we'll see that word show up in our text this morning as well. He squandered, he misused his bosses, his owner's possessions. So he called the manager in and asked. The, the picture is somebody ratted. Anybody hear a rat this morning? You use that word anymore? Snitch? I watch too many mafia. You're a rat, you be rat, you snitch. Somebody came to the boss and says, hey, just, just saying, you know, what are those, the boxes, right? The anonymous boxes. Oh, we call them whistleblowers. That's what it is, yeah, they were an hour current, finally. You know, a whistleblower comes and says, hey, you know, he's, he's, waste, he's, he's misusing your resources. He's managing, he's responsible for your stuff and he's using it incorrectly. And so the manager calls him in, the boss calls in the manager and he says, hey, what's this I hear about you? Someone came to me and told me that you're squandering my possession. So give an account. This is your annual job review. Bring the books. What are you doing with my with my money? Because you can no longer be my manager. Isn't that interesting? Now we could we could kind of unpack this for a while. We could go a couple different directions. Was it already known to the to the boss? Was the, the nature of the manager such that the boss didn't have a hard time believing what the, the whistleblower did? Did he already go to the books and, and look and see, and he's just now seeing if the guy is going to admit what he was doing? Parables are sometimes sketchy on details, right? He calls them in and he says, you're no longer the manager. You can't be my manager. So get things in order. Um, you're done. What do we call that? You get a... Yeah, see, everybody that said pink slip is over a certain age. <laughs> There's no such thing anymore as pink slip. But a pink slip, I just talked to my daughter yesterday. I said, you have your pink slip because she's looking to buy a car. She goes, a what? I go, oh, sorry, your title. Because we used to call that, some of you probably raced for pink slips. Not mentioned anybody <laughs> Paul, but, but, you know, some of you might have raced for pink slips. You're old enough to maybe have done that. But he's getting a pink slip. He's getting his termination. He's, here's your severance. You know, get things wrapped up, finish what you're doing because you're no longer my manager. You squandered my resources and you're busted. I'm cutting you loose. You think this is a crisis for this man? Yeah. Now, we saw last week, Matt very clearly pointed out this important piece of their culture, and that's the honor and shame aspect of, of the culture in which they live. Today, you get you get fired there's all kinds of rules protecting you, right? If the new boss calls up and says, hey, can you tell me about Matt? And go, uh, well, no, actually, you know, that's protected information. Uh, yeah, he worked here a long time. Thank you, you know. It's, you know what I mean? You just go out and you find another job. Uh, certainly there's financial crisis here, and he'll, he'll get into that. But keep in mind, there's also this shame aspect. Once it gets out that he's been fired because he squandered, he embezzled his boss's funds, who's going to hire him? Who's going to hire a manager, a bank manager, that stole from the bank? What bank is going to line up to say, hey, 
You're busted. He's losing his income. He's losing his status. He's losing his reputation. Legally, he could have lost more. The owner could have taken even more severe consequences. He chose not to. So the manager compiles himself. He has this meeting. He steps out of the office. The door closes, and he goes to his office, and he sits down, and he says to himself, what should I do? What am I going to do? Now, here's, here's the, the heartbeat of the crisis. The crisis has happened. It can be a crisis of your own making. It can be a crisis of somebody else's making. That's common as well, right? But the, the heartbeat, the center point of, of a crisis is when we stop and we say, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond to what's happened? And we get there different ways, right? My, my daughter, my youngest daughter, our youngest daughter, Lindsay, and her husband, Josh got a job with a solar company in Bend, Oregon. And you've heard me as a, as a papa talk, man, we have all our kids, all our grandkids in a couple miles, this is great. And then I always, you know, it's not the last service, but this is great, you know, and it's kind of just, well, it's, it's come. Two of our grandkids, little Nora and little Harry, are going to be six and a half hours away. That was, that was a crisis for me. She was at my house and she said, yeah, they, they offered him the job, but not enough. And he asked for a lot more money and they came right back and gave it to him. And I go, okay, it's a done deal. And I sat there on my couch and I'm actually holding one of those two grandkids and I have this crisis. So from that moment, you're fired, you've lost your job, the doctor says it's positive, your spouse says I'm done, whatever it might be, the economy can be anything. We enter this, this, this processing of the crisis and there's a key moment where we say, what am I going to do? And I had that moment on the couch as I was loving on little Nora, I had that moment, what am I going to do? I began to make a list of supplies so that I could kidnap her and we could, and Harry, and we could find a cabin somewhere in the mountains where we would not be found. No. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know what I did? I cried is what I did. And then I looked at my daughter and she's like, oh, she's all feeling bad. And, and, and now I'm, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to try to make her feel guilty? Am I going to try to, you know, put passive aggressively? Am I going to guilt? What am I going to do? What am I going to do in this crisis? I believe this is the heartbeat of this, this, this parable, and it's the turning point. And so he processes it like we would. My master is taking the management away from me. I no longer have this role, this job, this reputation. I'm not strong enough to dig a ditch. I'm too old to be a laborer. And interesting. He's thinking, right, that's what we're processing. What am I going to do? And I'm ashamed to beg. So what are my options? Nobody's going to hire me. My life is now going to be different from this point on. I can no longer be a manager. Well, what am I going to do? Well, I'm too old to dig. This is very quick. I'm too old to dig in this heat, and I'm too ashamed to beg from people. What am I going to do? I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do. Look at your Bible. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, when this plays out, we don't know what time, if it's two weeks, a couple days, but when this happens, I know what I'm going to do so that people will welcome me into their home, that people are going to take care of me. Now remember the shame and, and, the, and the, the honor and the shame aspect of, of this culture. There was also a reciprocity, I can never say the word, reciprocity. I think I added a syllable. Say it out loud. Reciprocity. Rest, oh, I got to say it like the British. Reciprocity. Say, say aluminum. Not say it like the British. Okay, you've all watched the, the, the Marvel things, right? So, now I can't say the British way. Aluminium. Okay, say it again. Aluminium. No, no, no. Focus, focus. Reciprocity. There was an element of reciprocity, which meant if I do for you, you owe me. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And he understands this, so he says, I know what I'll do. I'll use that. I'm going to do something that's going to put me in others in my debt. So he summoned each of his master's debtors, people that owed the, the master money or things. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. So he had him come in one at a time. The guy says 100 measures of olive oil. This was like a couple hundred gallons of oil. And he said, take your invoice, sit down quickly, write 50, cut it in half. Next, he asked the next one. Next comes in, how much do you owe? 100 measures of wheat. This was quite a few baskets, bushels of wheat. It was a lot, actually. He said, take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. Drop it down to 80. And so he goes through this process with, with his bosses, his, the owner's relationship. Now, there's all kinds of ideas what's happening here. The one that I kind of land on is that these are people that are using the owner's land. 
They're raising crops on the land. And based on these amounts, they were probably pretty big operations that they were running. And the, the master got a cut. Typically, it was half. So if you, you, know, you harvest your wheat at the end of the season, the owner of the land got half, and then you got the other half. But these amounts are not like someone, like a family-sized plot. These are, these are like what you see going down I-5 or down 99. You see these big aggregates. That's possibly what's happening. These are sharecroppers, the people that are leasing the land. And so based on the crop, why are the amounts different? It's based on the crop and what the crop produces. And so each year they would say, here's your part. And they would do this through the manager. The manager usually would get a, a cut of that. He would get a piece of it. And so he's sitting down with each of them and saying, okay, your harvest is good. You had that. Yeah, just drop it down to this. You need to pay my master this money. And he endears himself to these people that owe his boss. Here's the twist. Here's where it gets interesting. Because all that kind of makes sense, right? Even from a business sense. You know, okay, he's the manager. He's doing his job. He was not an honest manager. He got fired. Okay. The master, his owner, praises him. The unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. Now, how many have used the word astutely this week? Be honest. Okay. How many have used the word wise or wisely? Okay, that's sad. Only about 10%. We should be using wise more often. Parents especially. Parents didn't raise your hands. It just means to act wisely in a wise manner. Now, we know there's a distinction between human wisdom and God's wisdom, and they don't always align. But you realize sometimes they do align. And he's speaking of, from, from a human standpoint, the master goes, wow. Wow. Now, he's wealthy. Based on these numbers, I think he's very wealthy. He's not concerned about the money, but he's like, wow, that was really wise. We live in a culture of, of, of honor and shame, and I'm about to shame this man, because, and he deserves it. He's never going to work again in this field. I didn't see that coming. Wow. And he praises them because Jesus is telling the story. So if you got a problem with it, who, who wrote this story? Who wrote this script? Who just designed the characters? Jesus did. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted wisely, astutely. And then Jesus gives some commentary. For the sons of this age, of this world, are more wise or more astute than the sons of light, or disciples or followers of Jesus, in dealing with their own people, in dealing with one another. So I tell you, if you're confused, like, where, where's he going with this? And what do we do with this? This, this manager gets praised, not for his, his squandering, but for his response. Jesus says, I tell you, here, let me tell you what I think. Make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails, and literally when it no longer has value, they may welcome you into eternal, eternal dwelling. Let me give you some thoughts, if I can. And if you're a note taker, these might be what you want to write down. Number one, I hope that we learn. There's, these are lessons I see here. Number one is that we're all culpable for our own mess. When Jesus praises him, the, the master does, and Jesus says to learn from him, Jesus is not saying that he was righteous that he did when he squandered his possessions, but that's okay. We, we face crises of other people's making. We do, right? But the starting point is acknowledging that most of my crisis is of my own making. My own choices. My own failures. I've been married 37 years. And I've, and I've told you this before. The great theologian, Tim Allen, that taught me that you just, every morning you wake up, you lean over to your wife and you say, I'm sorry. And she says, why? For being a man, for all the stuff that I'm going to do today. Because the reality is, most of my crisis are what my wife calls man pain. And that's when we do something stupid, you know, lift something we shouldn't. Oh, Amy's shaking her head. She knows the concept. Most of my crises are of my own making. And if I'm going to learn what Jesus wants to teach me from this, if we're going to, I first need to come to terms with that I'm culpable for my own mess. I'm responsible. Culpable means I deserve the consequences. I deserve the punishment or whatever from my choices. I mean, we've all experienced it when the police officer pulls you over, right? I got two tickets in 10 minutes one time in another state with a, with a van load of high school kids. Yeah, the youth pastor got two tickets literally in 10 minutes. 
you know, and we get really, we get, we get really artistic and creative in that moment, don't we, officer? You know, and then all this, you know, I'm just pouring out all these reasons why. Why'd you pick the one car with California plates in this other state? I thought that was gonna, that was gonna get me off. Because yeah, no, we do that all the time. Okay, well that was next. See, I'm culpable for my own mess. And the lesson here is not that, hey, look, you know, if you if you do certain things afterwards, then the previous stuff no longer matters. That's not the lesson. But there is a lesson here, I think, in, in this manager, in that he doesn't defend himself, he doesn't deny it, he doesn't do what we often do when we're caught, when the boss says, hey, I know what you're doing. Right? What do we naturally do? And he just, he accepts it, he embraces it. We're culpable, we're responsible for our own mess. Why is that important? Because that changes this process, when I sit down and say, what am I gonna do? If I don't first come to this understanding, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do everything except what I should be doing. Because I sat there on the couch and I'm holding this one-year-old little girl that is in, she's so precious and, and, I'm, and you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna tell my daughter that that's not God's will for her life. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I can, I'll, I'll bring verses to this. I've tried this in my marriage, it doesn't work. But, If I don't first come to terms with that I'm culpable for my mess, that is that I'm responsible and, I'm, and, and I humble myself before God, I'm going to find myself coming up with what I should do, things that God's going to have to come back later and say, man, that wasn't at all what I wanted for you in that mess. We don't take the culpability. We're very prone to blame others. We're very prone to blame others. Second thought, crisis initiates change, our favorite word. Crisis initiates, some say it, it accelerates change and it exposes character. So wait a minute, this guy's character, was he squandered? He certainly did. But wasn't the prodigal, quote, prodigal son also a terrible character? And then there comes a turning point, right? Remember the phrase? He came to his... That was all initiated by the crisis. See, what, what God does in a crisis is he begins to work. And that and I know we don't want to hear that. Because I certainly don't pray for more crisis. I'm sorry I'm ignoring you, I think, over here. The sun's getting a little warm out here. A crisis initiates God moving. And we won't, we can't grow without change. I can't, I... I I want to grow in my relationship with Lindsay and Josh and with Nora and Harry. But I certainly didn't want it to happen this way. But this is going to initiate some things. It's going to initiate some intentionality on my part, isn't it? There's some things I'm going to purposely have to do to build this relationship, to continue building it. Change or crisis initiates change and exposes character, exposes where we are. Now, this was an unrighteous manager, no question. He had done some wrong things, but it exposed something about him that Jesus identified that he had wisdom. He had astuteness to say, you know what, I got I can't wallow in my grief, I can't wallow in my in my in my worry or whatever. I've got to okay, what am I going to do? How am gonna how am I gonna respond to this crisis? Crisis initiate initiates change, it, 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 it accelerates it and it exposes what we are inside. Would you agree with me that what we're walking through for the last four or five months has exposed some things? on about every level of society. You remember 2008, the housing crisis? Crisis? Did it expose some things? Certainly did. What about 9-11? You can go back, what about World War II? I mean, you can go back as a culture, you can go back to your life, and you can look at these moments of crisis and they expose. Because we're really good at getting into routines and patterns and normalcy and that, that word that's at the top of our wish list, comfort and familiarity. Are we not? We work really hard at that. But that becomes a layer over what's really happening. A blind, one of these, these black things, it's blocking us. Jim can't see what's behind him. There's a guy about ready to jump on him and, and peel his pin. And he can't see it because, see, he was paying attention. Because he, he can't see it. And it covers us. Crisis exposes characters. And I leave it good or bad because it exposes characters. What's happening? Third thought, 
And this is the, the, the sentence that I think we grapple with in his parable. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwelling. I'm gonna, I'm gonna distill it down to a simple statement, what I believe he's talking about. Use the temporal to impact eternity. Use what you have right now, everything that is temporal, which is what? Well, that's my breath. Is my breath temporal, my breathing temporal? It really is. Is my physical ability that is, that is it's, it's waning, or not waning, but really, what's the word? Waning, thank you. Sometimes it just it's wanes for me. I'm so drained. It's, it's going away, how about that? You know, but that is, that's, that's something that I have right now. My mouth is working, my brain and heart is working, my legs are working, that's temporal. I have, I have money to buy clothes, I have money to pay the mortgage, I have money to meet our expenses. That's temporal. Time. Everything that we have, in this case, he says specifically he's this temporal thing called money that he calls unrighteous other places. He, he says it's, it's, you know, ungodly mammon. But he says, use the temporal. Here's how I want you to think. He's applying this parable. I tell you, make friends for yourselves. Here's an example of a guy that took the temporal. He took what he had and used it to make underlying application here i think is that he's he's trying to, to to focus us on other people because the one thing that goes with us the one thing that is eternal that is not temporal besides god and his promises are you guys now praise god we're going to look a little different there will be no dwaining in heaven okay hopefully you remember that we're going to look different we're going to have things that we've never experienced but it's going to be you it's going to be me. It's going to be human beings. And Jesus, I believe, wants them to focus taking the temporal, the things that they have, and impact eternity. Now, the, the part that's confusing to scholars is this welcoming you into eternal dwellings. And where this is where I land, at least, is that I think he's, he's, he's wanting us to look at people around us, particularly the poor, particularly those who, who don't have what they need serve them, minister to them, use what you have. This idea of welcoming you into eternal dwellings, I believe is the phrase that describes that you will be together so that you can be together for eternity. It's bigger than what this manager did. He did it. He did it so that he would be taken care of. Jesus says, I want you to, I want to expand your thinking. I want you to think in terms beyond the temporal to the eternal. Use the temporary, use the temporal to impact eternity. And my last thought in this section is this. Jesus works in the crisis to build his kingdom. If there's anything that we can learn from this parable, I pray that it's that. That Jesus always works in the crisis to build his kingdom. He's not worried about who is elected the president in November. He's not. He's really not. And he's not even worried about the economy in California or the, the country or, or the things that just fill our hearts and minds. He's somehow frozen right now. That Jesus is doing what many of us are doing. Well, let's just see how this plays out. Let's see how this goes. And then when this is all settled and we're back to normal, then I will be back to building my kingdom. Never forget that Jesus lived and walked on this earth in the midst of the Roman Empire. And if there was ever a time of crisis for, for everyday common people, it was living under the rule of Rome. It was not an easy life. We saw the, the tax collectors and how they operated. And there were many other aspects. It wasn't at all like what we have today. You could be thrown in jail for no reason. Pilate didn't like you. Enough people said you were bad, you were bad. And you were going to... Right? <laughs> yeah. You have a right to die when they tell you to die. In the way that they tell you to die. He lived, he walked this earth in a time of great social crisis. And was he moving in those three years or in those 33 years? Was God building his kingdom on the... In, wait a minute. They killed him. They executed him. You're telling me God was building his kingdom in that crisis? Can you shake your head yes if you believe that to be true? See, Jesus always works in the crisis. He works in the crisis to build his kingdom. And as he moves into the next, what Luke records here, he says some kingdom principles. He says, whoever is faithful and very little, just, he says, well, stay with me. I want you to understand. He does this all through his ministry, right? I know what you think. I know what you experience. I know what you think. Well, 
Mike is like Katie, and you're not wrong, but let me tell you what it's like in the kingdom of God. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Wait, no, that can't be true. The guy who's the CEO of a large company or the woman that, that started and founded that company and grew, she's got to be more. No, you, you, you look at things differently. You look at the bank account. You look at the, the, the influence. You look at what the world looks at. And I'm telling you, in the kingdom of God, it's different. Those who are faithful in very little, you don't even know who they are. You're not even aware that they're being faithful in the role that I've given them. They will also be faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little will also be righteous in much. See what he's saying? We learned it in an election, I don't know how many cycles ago, but character does matter. Because the kingdom of God is about transforming us from the inside. Then he says, so if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, the temporal things that you have, who's going to trust you with what is genuine, what is eternal, what matters in the big scheme of things to God's heart? And if you've not been faithful to what belongs to someone else, you're managing for someone else, you certainly are going to not have other people give you. You're not going to, and we can include God in that. Well, yeah, but if it was mine, I would take better care of it. Don't we say that? Kids certainly say that to their parents when they get that first car. <laughs> it says, not true. It says, let me say it this way. No household slave, someone who is an obligated slave in a household and they have masters can be the slave of two masters. It just doesn't work. You have to obey one and ignore the other or ignore one and obey the other, love one. You get it, right? You've heard him say this before. Since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, now it's not only in red in my notes, and it should be red in your Bible, but I got an underline in mind. Because Jesus just emphatically says, you cannot be slaves to both God and money. Either money temporal is first or eternal is first. There's no compromise. There's no other option. You're either using the temporal for the eternity or you're using the temporal for yourself and ignoring eternity. You can't serve both. Here's a lesson for me and I share it with you. It's, it's impacted me deeply this week. Growing in a crisis, if I'm going to grow in a crisis, requires that there is a clarity of my devotion. If I'm going to grow in this crisis, there needs to be a clarity of who to what I am devoted to. My, my, my daughter and her husband, Josh, moving away with the grandkids. This is a, I know you're thinking I'm being a baby about this, but it's a big deal to me. In this crisis, it's important. Whatever happens from this point on is going to be determined by the clarity of my devotion. Who am I going to serve? Am I going to serve me? Or am I going to serve them? You with me? Am I going to serve my kingdom? Or am I going to serve God's kingdom? That's my choice. I read this this week. I love this. You can have money in God, but you can't serve both money and God. You can have money in God in your life, but you cannot serve both money and God. Well, <laughs> like us, probably the crowd is like, what in the world? And they're processing this, and they're thinking it through, and there's a group of Pharisees there. And I love Luke says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. There's no question their allegiance, who their, who their master is. They were listening to all these things and they're scoffing at him. Now, this is literally the word, the, the aromatic word for uh, having, looking over your nose. I don't, we don't do that too much anymore, but kind of, or we do this. We may do this. We don't do that. That's rude. We're Americans. We're not rude. Um, it's just this idea of looking down on other people. How dare he say these things? It's interesting to me because it appears that they're kind of taking him to that he's talking about them a little bit. They're lovers of money. They're listening. They're scoffing. And he turns to them and he says, I don't know if Jesus said this, but he might say this. Just saying, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others. You are the ones I'm talking about. But God knows your heart. You're the one that gets up and says how we behave is the right way to behave and follow us and, and do what we tell you and, and live under the system that we've, we've invented, which they had, they twisted. He says, you're the ones that get up in front of people and say, this is how you should live. This is, we've got it right. This is how you should live under the rule of Rome. For what is highly admired by people is revolting 
in God's sight. This word revolting means foul. Now this Greek, we're gonna have lunch soon. So, well, we got time. My cat typically kills mice, but he killed a rat here today. My cat, my wife's cat. <laughs> he killed a rat and she's out watering, it's dark, and she goes, ah, bring your phone, bring your light. And so I go out there and she steps on something and she's watering over there. And here's a rat and the back half, is, it all looks fine, but the back half won't move and the front half is like, get away and our dog's laying there. Oh, move. So I'll just say there was a shovel involved. I didn't know what else to do. And then I threw it in the trash can. End of story. Unfortunately, it was the day after the trash can that I threw the rat in the trash can. Yeah, so I don't have to go any further, right? <laughs> I'm turning to there now. Sure, honey, I'll let the trash can. Whoa, what in the world? And I'm and foolishly, because I'm a man, here's man pain, I went, what is that? You know, and I look, and of course, then it just like I could taste it at that point. You know, but it was foul. It was foul, and all I wanted to do was get away from it. That's the word Jesus uses here. He says the things that you, your society, that people put out, this is how we should act, or this is how we should behave, and people go, whoa, I want to be like that. Jesus says to me, that behavior, that thinking is foul. I want to get away from it. it it's that the, the smell in my nostrils that I can, I can taste, and I want nothing to do with it. Now he's saying to the Pharisees, the way you live, your values, how you're leading, how you're living your life is foul to God. And they get it. They get it. There's no mistaking. Can I say it this way? We cannot fool God. We reap what we sow. And I, and I think that's an important thought lesson in the crisis, seasons of crisis, because we can respond to crisis in, in wrong ways. And sometimes it appears that it's right, and other people go, hey, well, I want to be like them. I want to do what they're doing. That's, that's the way to respond. And sometimes, sometimes, People go, yeah, look at that. And God's saying, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. It's foul to me. He looks past the exterior and he looks right in here as he's doing right now to me and to you and to you. And he knows exactly, as he says here, God knows his heart. He knows, let me say it this way, he knows our master. He knows who we're actually serving with our words and our behavior and our lives. We cannot fool him. We reap what we sow. And then we wrap up. He, he makes a, a very significant point that my time is done, so I'm going to wrap this up. He says, the law and the prophets, what we would know, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, sometimes your Bible will say the Old, instead of Testament, it will say covenant, the Old Covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham. There's covenants through the scriptures, right? Abrahamic, the Davidic, there's these covenants that God makes with, with Jacob. He makes covenants, and it's recorded in the Law and the Prophets. The covenant is God's decision as to how he will interact with his creation. He makes these promises that are dependent upon him and his character, not us. You with me? Because Abraham failed, David failed, David failed, Jacob failed. Every covenant that God made with people, the people failed. With Israel, they failed. They failed over and over not dependent on us it's dependent on him he makes these covenants and the law and the prophets record this and they've been in place until john the baptist since then since john the baptist and the, the lamb of god appeared the good news of the kingdom of god has been proclaimed that is the new covenant this covenant which is sealed with my blood a new covenant is being proclaimed. The kingdom of God has been proclaimed. And everyone, that's a change. You meant, Jesus, you meant Jews, right? No. Everyone is strongly urged to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. Everything you and I know, it's, it's more likely that all this would be destroyed and go away and not exist. It's easier for that to happen than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out, to no longer be valid, to disappear. He's saying, he's saying, God's word is secure. God's promises are fixed. God's covenants are eternal. He never breaks his covenant. Can you say amen to that? Everything you and I are, are hoping for and counting on are built on the foundation of his covenant through Jesus Christ. 
It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to drop out. And then he makes a right-hand turn, it seems, and he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There must be something missing, right? <laughs> like, I struggled with this. I, I did it. Like, Jesus, what? And here's where I landed. He's comparing the covenants, the promises of people with the covenant, the promises of God. Now, he'll tell them in another place because they're going to come and say, well, hey, Moses said we could divorce. And he said, yeah, because of the hardness of your heart and wanting out, wanting something better, wanting, quote, better, something different. Wanting your freedom, whatever, punishing somebody. You want to be able to enter in and, and enter out of covenants in the way that best serves you. And God says, my covenants will always be true to my nature. And they will always serve my glory. And they will always be for your best. Amen. He contrasts how we look at covenants, how we look at promises. So here's my last thought. And with this, I'm done. God's kingdom is going to survive any crisis that we face because his covenants are fixed they're sure we may not we might make some choices we might go our own way but god will never ever break his promise to you and me to this world you believe that when you see the grand canyon you go there and you see what the flood did do you believe that God will never again destroy this earth by water? But that's what he said. We could literally take a walk through scripture and realize that on every page is the promise of God. The covenant of God. And we come here this morning and if you have these, I want to encourage you to take those out because this is the new covenant, the new testament. This is Jesus sharing that, that Passover meal with his disciples. Was, 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 was Passover a celebration of God's promise? Not a trick question. Yes. yes, okay, thank you. Thank you, Alex. He's like, I'm not sure I want to answer. He, he promised that he was going to set his people free. And he did it through a series of incredible events. And now they're sitting around in their homes and the father has taken a, a lamb into the household for three days. You want to talk about a crisis? What? If I brought a little lamb into my house for three days, what's the first thing that my grandkids would do? Name They'd name it. <laughs> then secondly, they would... Okay, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's a pastor there, a preacher there, name and claim it. But practically, they would make a bed for it. They would take whatever they wanted from the house. And I mean whatever they wanted. They would take my pillow if they thought that was the best thing. And they would make a bed for it. And then they would feed it they would love it because they would feed it they would they would water it would they pick up the poop in the backyard no they would not but they would name it they would give it a bed and then dad would come and he would take that lamb and he would kill it talk about a crisis because that's what god says to do it's a, it's a display of the cost of my covenant and you take that lamb that pure, perfect little lamb that your kids are all crying, and you take the blood and you mark it on your post, and you sit down and you fix that lamb in a certain way and you eat it together, and you remember the price and the commitment of God's covenant and his promise. That night, in that upper room, they were sharing that meal that they'd been sharing, the Jewish people had been sharing for a very long time, for several, many centuries. And he took that bread. Remember, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. You take this and you eat it in remembrance of me. So I invite you to take, eat. Do it in remembrance of him. Because church, we need to remember, I told you this is where we we're gonna end up. We need to remember our identity and our mission. In the crisis, and any of these lessons are going to stick. They're all going to come home to root right here. My identity and my mission. And Jesus says, you need to remember. You need to remember that my body was broken. They had yet to experience it, but they were just about to see his body broken on the cross. Most of them from a distance. 
They knew exactly what crucifixion meant. When they heard that Jesus was being drugged out of the city, carried out with that cross, they knew exactly what was coming. They had witnessed it many times. So in that meal, when he said, this is my body which is broken, do this in remembrance of me. In that same meal, he took the cup. In the Passover meal, celebrating the covenant of God, he said, this cup is my blood poured out for you. The new covenant God's making with people, with us, based on his blood and the shed on the cross. He invites us. If we have put our faith in him as we fight with us, and if you take it, often as you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim my death. What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming the covenant of God with mankind. If Jesus suffered and died, we could be suffering. We proclaim his death until he comes. Does that mean we proclaim it in the middle of a crisis? If we believe he's still coming, if you believe the crisis has changed that somehow, then please don't proclaim it. But if your faith tells you that even in the midst of crisis, Jesus is building the kingdom, and his return for us is fixed because he never breaks his promises, he always keeps his covenant, then we can keep on being children of God. We can be identified with him. He's our master, nothing else, no one else. Because what we just did is we proclaimed his death until he comes. Amen? Amen. You know what we need to do? We need to connect our hearts to our mouths and to let it come out of our mouths. What we believe to be true about our Savior Jesus Christ. Church, we're in a crisis. No doubts in my mind of that. But here's, here's the question. Will we partner with God? and build the kingdom of God right here, right now, through this ragtag and flexible kingdom. Because the promises are true.